Hello, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Chiara Genvito, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Liz Earnshaw. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and complex grief therapist based in Pennsylvania. Today, we will be discussing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on familial relationships. Let's get into today's conversation. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for being on today. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I was wondering if you want to start by telling our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So I am Liz Earnshaw. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I run a practice in Pennsylvania where we work a lot with people, helping them to have healthier relationships um, with other people, but also with themselves. And I'm also a certified Gottman therapist and I run online programs. So I give people lots of access points to figuring out how to develop just a healthier relationship with themselves and other people. That's amazing. Um, I was wondering if you could provide us a bit of an understanding of the term family. I think it's often considered in nuclear context, but I was really interested in hearing your conceptualization. Ah, that's such a good question. So I think of family as, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that we can think of family. I think we can think about it in terms of like the nuclear conceptualization where you think about how the people that um, you know raised you, impacted you, played a role in your development, even if they weren't actively there, quote, raising you, how that even played a role in what you think about um, your worthiness and your connection and all of those types of things. So yes, there's, there's certainly that. I also think that there are more creative definitions around family um, in terms of who offers us support, who is there to make sure that we are safe, who is there to celebrate us. And so for some, family is that nuclear family we grew up with. And for others, it is, um, it is kind of the network that we have created over time in different ways based off of who feels safe and supportive and all of that kind of stuff. Thank you. I think that's a really good way to kind of explain it. Um, I know because of the COVID-19 pandemic, our kind of our support systems have changed. How would you say um, throughout the stages of the pandemic, families' response has shifted, if at all? Oh, gosh. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so it's actually fascinating to me, and I cannot wait until a few years from now when someone writes a book about this, (laughs) because someone is going to have so much material for what is going on with families. Um, I'm sure you have thoughts on it too, but I have seen in my, my office, so I'm a therapist, I work with individuals and families and couples, just this really fascinating pattern of families really kind of responding almost the way we would have predicted them to respond, if that makes sense. So some families are doing a really wonderful job like activating around it and figuring out how to get like each person's needs met, um, being responsive to like differences and all of that kind of stuff. Other families are really struggling and they're becoming incredibly divided. And I think that a lot of it was like 
when we, when we face moments of stress in our relationships, the way that we were already dealing with the relationship often shows up just in a much hotter way. And so the families who are becoming divisive were often families that were already struggling to like accept differences, um, find out win-win situations, figure out how to support each other and their own individual needs. And so there are these interesting like conflict points that are coming up where to me, a lot of old stuff is playing out. Um, you know, for instance, one family member wanting to still have like a holiday celebration and the others saying, no, we're not coming. And in the fam the first family I talked about, those families have been able to articulate their feelings. Well, that makes me really sad you're not coming. I really wish we could do this. And the other side being able to say, it makes us sad too but we respecting each other's differences and saying, is there something else we can do to come up with a win-win here? Like I'll cook dinner and I'll drop it off to you. And then maybe we can eat it together on, on zoom or something like that. Or we can come up with a new tradition or maybe half of us eat here and half of us eat there. The other families I've seen stuff play out from childhood, like you're not coming because you don't care about me. Um, or you never listen anyway, or you're always the one that's making irresponsible choices. So that's really, I've seen this as just being a trigger point for a lot of stuff that was already happening. Yeah, definitely. I, I can definitely see how it kind of just exacerbates any conditions that were already there. Um, yeah. I would be very interested in asking you to families who are in the same household, which are probably spending more time together because of stay home orders, would you say that would be um, similar? Yes, I think so. I also have noticed, you know, a silver lining here, I guess, is that for some families, staying home together and spending more time together has actually alleviated a lot of outside stress like just silly things you don't think about, long car rides, um, having too many people to visit, all of those types of things. And a lot of relational problems are actually about outside stress, you know, not having enough time for each other, being frustrated by the time you walk in the door and yelling at everybody. Um, and so those types of relationships, I think, have actually improved because they are able to put their energies towards each other and all of that distress is, is not there. But like you asked, I think that couples, families, um, family units that are living together that were already having some trouble and especially trouble around, I believe like respecting differences, communicating needs, talking about feelings. They are, even though they're together all the time, I find that they're feeling a lot more isolated um, and very disconnected and, and frustrated, obviously, about the entire scenario. Yeah, I definitely see that. I mean, it's very clearly a big stressor. Um, I think what's something interesting you touched upon was kind of making decisions. Um, how do families go about talking to their children about the pandemic or about death and grieving? Um, how is that looking like? 
Oh gosh, that's such a good question. I have a toddler, so <laughs> it's certainly, it's, it's hard because this is something that it, we're still living in the middle of. So it's a little bit different than perhaps um, isolated incidences in the past where perhaps a, a family member would die or a pet would die or something like that. And you would talk about that. There is kind of like this diffuse experience happening, which kids are aware of. So for instance, my son, and I don't even know how he was exposed to the information, but kids are so smart. Um, when this first started, he didn't want to go outside anymore. And I asked him why, and he said, it's bad outside. And seriously, he had not seen the news, nothing, but I think he started to recognize our patterns of going to the grocery store. All of that had changed. And it, I honestly hadn't spoken to him about it yet. And so there was this moment where I had to talk to him about like where it is safe and what does make it safe. And you have to think what's developmentally appropriate. So my son doesn't really understand the concept of death. At that point, he was only two years old. But what he does understand is when people don't feel good, he understands that things can be dangerous. He understands that he might need to do certain things like wash his hands or not go to certain places. So a lot of the ways that I talk to this younger child about it is more along the lines of how do you keep yourself safe? So not so much you're going to die if you go to the grocery store, but the way we keep ourselves safe is we get our groceries delivered or the way we keep ourselves safe is when we go to the store, we wear our mask. Isn't that nice? That's how we're going to be really safe from the germs. And then when we leave the store and we're in our car, our car is totally safe and you can, you can take all of that off. Now, as time, as the age increases, there's more and more information that you can share. I mean, particularly around death. And I always suggest that you use those words, that you say death, that you talk about what death is, and that you ask your kids questions about how they're feeling. So I remember when my son first had to leave school, and then actually his dog died this year, and we moved, there was like lots of loss, and he was just totally beside himself. And we were talking about it and I kept saying, I can tell you're really sad. And my husband, who's not a therapist, just a normal guy, he was like, you need to stop talking about all these feelings. You're making it worse. And I was like, I promise you, wait and watch what will happen. And I said, honey, are you really sad because you miss your friends and because like outside feels scary? And he just started sobbing and saying like, yes. And I said, are you scared? And he said, yes. So talking about feelings isn't going to make them worse, but it's actually going to let your kid know that they can come to you. And our children are feeling the difference. They're feeling the loneliness. They're feeling fear and worry. And so depending on their age, you might have to feed them the words. You might have to say, are you feeling worried? Are you feeling scared? But ask them questions. Ask them what they think about death. Ask them where they think people go, ask them how people stay safe. Be curious about their world because sometimes they already have a lot of thoughts and you don't need to tell them as much as you think you do. I think that's really interesting. I think also, as you mentioned, I think it 
could be interesting how the pandemic is kind of a catalyst for these conversations when they may necessarily have come farther down the line um, or maybe not happened at all. Um, do you think this will have an impact on children as they grow up and then maybe their relationship in their own families if they happen to have one in the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious about how this influences children. I mean, there's, it's hard because there are so many different experiences right now within the similar experience. So, you know, my son is having an experience of his parents home all the time. So what's that going to be like for him? You know, maybe when he grows up, his expectation of family life is that it's people are together all the time. And it's really, um, you know, given him, I think, a really positive um, vision of what parenting looks like. He and his father, or, or myself and his father, are, are both doing the same things all the time. You know, my, my husband makes dinners, I make dinners. So I think he's really learning what that can look like. But I also don't want to forget that there are other families where things are incredibly strained, like people are still going to work and they don't know which daycare to put their kids in or their kids are school-aged and there's nowhere for them to go because schools are closed. And so they're having to bring in babysitters and things might feel more chaotic um, for the family unit because there's always things changing. They're having to constantly find someone else to help or kids are home this day and not the next day and all of that. And um, I'm just curious about how, like there's gonna be two things. One, it will certainly build some sense of, of resilience, but I don't want resilience to take away definitely like the um, stress that's kind of chronic and inescapable for families right now um, and how that's gonna impact just things like anxiety, depression, I don't know, all of those types of things growing up. I don't know yet. We don't know what it's gonna look like. But we do know that when stress is chronic and inescapable, that it causes trauma symptoms. And so one thing is that, you know, we have to um, make sure that we are being honest and not bypassing the fact that our children are under an inescapable chronic stress right now. And we need to talk about their feelings and we need to help them learn how to get moments of, of reprieve from that. And we need to figure out what it looks like in the midst of chaos, which is not our fault. It's not our fault. Um, everybody, every parent I really believe is doing the very best they can. And how can we buffer some of this for kids? Yeah, I think definitely. I think for both parents and children, it's definitely a difficult time. I think you touched upon the inconsistencies that are occurring right now, um, especially with childcare. I know a lot of families rely on extended family as well for childcare, which may not be possible. Um, how is that interaction happening with extended families and then maybe um, families within a household? Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> we have, you know, I can say from my own experience, it's been, it's been a nightmare. I mean, we'll have support one week and then someone will say that they no longer feel safe to do it. Someone will get sick. Um, you know, I know other families have been really excited because they do have school again and then the school gets shut down and suddenly they're having to scramble. 
And we have to remember not everyone has work from home privileges. I mean, there are people who work in grocery stores, hospitals, um, that work in different types of services like plumbing and electricians. They're not working from home. So the scrambling of figuring out not only who's going to keep my kids safe, but also who's going to enrich their lives during the day. I know so many families are so stressed about what's happening when I'm not there. Are they just sitting in front of the TV all day? Is someone playing with them? Or am I just having to get a random person each day of the week to really help me? Um, and then on top of that, if you don't have someone, if you can't go into work, the stress you're feeling about not performing, potentially losing your job, um, getting negative feedback. So it, it's so much for families. And I think that for families that have other members living in the home, there's some benefit. We've had family members come live with us just to keep it safe where you do have multiple adults to help. I think it also carries its own stress because it's kind of inescapable for the helper. Like they're always there with you helping. Um, but I do think there's some consistency for people that don't have that privilege to have someone come stay with them or someone already living with them. I do think that there have been so many decision trees they have to go through. How safe is it to bring this person in? How safe are we for this person? Um, and I just have so much empathy for the impossible, really the impossible situation of parenthood right now. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. I think one thing you said that was interesting is inescapable. Like it's kind of everyone's with each other all the time. I was kind of wondering um, the relationship between parents in within the family household. Um, how is that working currently? Maybe not having privacy or time by themselves. Same goes for kids. Um, how is that working? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know from my clients. Um, yeah, it's so previously people had rituals built into their lives, right? And so there was kind of, even if it was busy, there was an awareness of when they would connect. So we'll both be at work and then we'll pick up the kids and then there will be dinner and then the kids will go to bed. And then like, that's when we hang out at 9 PM and watch our show or something like that. But right now things, this is what I've heard from a lot of people that there's no sense of time. And I don't know if you've experienced this. I have where it's like, it could be midnight and I'm like, uh, it doesn't, doesn't matter. I'm not going to have to leave the house in the morning. <laughs> so there's like this loss of like organization and sense of time for those working from home. And I think that what that's done is it's blurred the lines where people don't know when they're gonna connect. And then even when the kids go to bed, everything feels like all over the place. So you're not just sitting down and like, my husband and I used to like eat cookies and watch TV together. We're not doing that. We're like, all over the place. I'm on my phone. He's like hanging out, finishing work. There's not the work boundary. So the computer is still there. You can still access things. Um, and so one thing I've encouraged people is to find new routines. Like where are you connecting? Are you promising each other that when the workday is over, even though technically your office is in the room next door, 
can you still promise you're going to close the computer and come home and hang out with each other or make dinner together? Um, for families where people are still working out of the home, there's also the chaos there that might not have looked, you know, before maybe they pick, got a couple hours extra to go get stuff done and then they picked up their kids from daycare. But a lot of daycares have, they don't have extended days anymore. So people are just having to go pick up their kids immediately and like rush home and let the nanny go home and all of these types of things that um, I think are making it hard for people to get back into their ritualization. Yeah, I do think even with my, in myself, I noticed the switch in kind of from normalcy from before to kind of finding a new normal and different rituals that fit within yeah. it has been a big thing. Um, I think what's been interesting for me is rituals around grieving. I know that's usually sometimes a community-based situation. We rely on others. Um, how is that impacting people not having that currently? Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. I have, so my grandfather died earlier this year and we couldn't go to the funeral because only a certain number of people were allowed to go. My aunt put it on Zoom, which was really nice. And the, the priest helped to facilitate that. So it was actually like you were there, you could still see everything. But there was still not the sense of being able to like give hugs and to see each other's grieving and to talk um, in a prolonged way and to just be present with each other. And I think that not being able to, um, first of all, often people aren't even allowed to be there during the, dying, the death and dying process where they used to be able to go to the hospice center to hold hands, um, hug, say goodbye. No one's allowed in. So there are people that are dying alone, which for the griever is very painful because they imagine that this person was lonely and felt unloved and all of these terrible thoughts that you would have to carry with yourself. Um, so that's challenging with the grieving process. Another thing that helps grieving is to actually have a ritualized way that you memorialize it. And that's why we do it. That's why we have viewings. That's why we have funerals. That's why we have wakes, um, luncheons, because the ritual marks the end of life and the ritual marks the beginning of grieving. And so without that, I think people feel like they don't know where, where they are with that. Like it feels like it happened, but it didn't happen. Um, and then you don't have your community that's coming over and hugging you on the couch while you cry and taking you to the mall and just doing these things that might allow you to feel connected and, um, you know, almost like have these moments of like tapping back into life again. So it's just really, it's really challenging and an incredibly lonely experience, I think. I just want to say my condolences. I know this is an unimaginable situation um, and very difficult. Do you see this impacting how we approach grief in the future, possibly post-pandemic, um, hopefully? Um, do you see this in any way shaping or shifting it? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think one thing that is interesting is how we are learning that there are other ways to do things. 
And that is actually something that's really beautiful to me is that we've moved out of rigidity around a lot. And there are, and I'm sure you've heard people say this too. It's like, well, why couldn't we always have done it this way? Right? Um, because people get stuck in rigidity and they think this is the only way to do it. So I think with grieving, we're gonna open up new things where for instance, being able to live stream the funeral, I could have gone because I was close enough, but I actually have family members that are in um, other states that wouldn't have been able to come, but they would have been totally left out. And with this, they were able to view it on their computer and still be a part of it. And so I do think that there are gonna be ways that we utilize technology, that we think outside of the box about support, that we consider other ways to include people in the grieving process. And that piece of it is really beautiful. I think that's amazing how we can kind of find beauty in it or find ways for growth. Is there any tips for coping you would suggest for families who are struggling during this time? Sure. So I think one thing is that you have to have lots of self-compassion. Um, there is no quick fix for the struggle. The struggle is a realistic, normal response to a very abnormal, overwhelming situation. And so whatever is happening for you in your family, within yourself is probably, probably makes total sense based off of who your family is, who you are, all of those things and who your family is under incredible stress. So you have to normalize it. I think you have to be able to say to yourself, we are responding to something we've never had to experience. And I always suggest that people use Kristen Neff's self-compassion break. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's essentially just three steps. One is that you recognize your suffering, that you don't bypass that, that you say, this really sucks, or this is really painful or I'm really alone and I'm suffering. The second is to be able to recognize your common humanity in that. Other people that have children are, I'm not the only one that feels like my house is chaotic. I'm not failing. Other people who have to work out of the home and don't have any support right now feel this way too. Other people living together in complete quarantine 10 people in a house, all working from home, they feel frustrated too. So there's common humanity. And then the third is to be kind to yourself. And you can be if you want to, to others too, but saying to yourself, I'm really going to be gentle with myself around my suffering. I'm not going to kick myself about how I feel like our house is all over the place. I'm going to say, wow, this is hard. And I need to be gentle and I need to like eat a meal right now, or I need to ask for a hug or whatever it is that you need in that moment. So take lots of self-compassion breaks. Number two, I really suggest that you get outside. <laughs> you don't have to go to public places, but get out of your house, get out of the hospital that you're working in, get out of the car you're driving in all day, whatever it is that you are stuck doing all day and that you're feeling all of the stress weighing on you, get outside. Go for a walk around your neighborhood, sit on your front steps, breathe in air and 
start to create some grounding space between everything that's going on in your head and all of the stress um, and a reality of a peaceful moment. So try to do that. My third tip is what we talked about earlier, create some routine. So a lot of people are waiting until the day that things are normal again to have a routine. They're saying, well, once things are normal, we'll go back to having our date nights or once things are normal, we'll go back to having like our Sunday family dinners or whatever it is. Um, you might not be going back to those anytime soon. You might be, but um, you need to create things now. So you're actually living your life right now. I know that we like to live in the past and the future, but you're living right now and you have to figure out within this scenario, what do we want our home life to look like? Do we wanna get up at a certain time and eat breakfast together? Do we wanna have certain dinners that are special? Like we do a funny like picnic thing once a week where we sit on a picnic blanket in our living room and eat. You have to think of some things that can exist, exist now to ground your life um, without outside forces telling you to. So our lives, a lot of them were controlled by outside forces. I mean, they're still kind of, but you don't have a job that's telling you that you'll get home at 6 p.m. necessarily. So you might have to say to yourself, at 6 p.m., we're still going to eat. We're not just gonna like wait all night because we don't have any, any semblance of time. So those are some, I think, of the most important tips for right now. Thank you. I think those are definitely helpful. I think they're definitely going to help me in kind of taking and implementing them and kind of implementing a structure for yourself that works for you. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much for talking with me today. And I was wondering if there's anything else you'd like to tell our audience. Um, if there's anything you'd like to add. I mean, I think the only other thing is what I already said, but just please be gentle on yourselves. And I also want to mention that I completely understand that even though this is a similar experience, we're all having different scenarios. And so if you're feeling very alone in the fact that everyone else is, every, not everyone else, but many people are working from home and that you feel like your life hasn't really changed in that way, you're still on the grind, leaving the house, I empathize with you. If you are working from home and you really are jealous of the people that are going into work every day, I empathize with you. If you are saying, actually, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me, that's a valid perspective too. If this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you, I empathize with you. So I think it's so important that we don't get tunnel vision that everyone is having the exact same experience here and that we allow there to be space for the nuance of experiences um, and the impacts of, of different people that are experiencing this. Thank you so much. I really appreciated our conversation today um, and, I, and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It was so nice to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> You've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.